This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us again for another exciting week on the show. We have Dr. Michael Fralick back with us, a good old fan favorite, I think, for most of us. And he's a fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Kieran. So uh, let's jump right in. As usual, we've got a couple of very interesting studies that hopefully you'll enjoy. Uh, and to lead it off, Mike is going to introduce the article that he chose for this week. Okay, great. So this study was published in The Lancet in August of 2017. Primary author was uh, Dr. Sibbing. And the study was entitled, Guided De-Escalation of Antiplatelet Treatment in Patients with Acute Coronary Syndrome Undergoing Percutaneous Coronary Intervention randomized, open-label, multi-center trial. I have a feeling this is going to have a personalized medicine flavor to it, but let's find out. Mike, what is the bottom line for this article? Uh, bottom line, in patients with acute coronary syndrome undergoing uh, PCI, or percutaneous coronary intervention, platelet function testing, which is a lab test, can identify patients where treatment can be de-escalated from a newer agent like Prasagril, which has a higher risk of bleeding, to good old-fashioned clopidogrel, which is a lower risk of bleeding. Okay, well that sounds definitely important, and I know we live in an age where bleeding is certainly an important consideration with all of the new therapies that we have, as efficacious as they are. Mike, why did you choose this article? Well, I mean, since these sort of newer agents like Prasagril and Ticagrelor have come onto the market, I think it's pretty clear they're more efficacious, but it's also clear they have an increased risk of bleeding. So it's always hard to know who should get these agents, who should get clopidogrel, and clinically it's really hard for me to distinguish and identify what patient characteristics might predict who's going to respond well and who's going to respond poorly to these medications. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I sometimes feel a little bit baffled or feel like I'm flipping a coin if I choose one versus the other. Don't tell my patients that, but hopefully this trial gives us some insight into how to make a more informed decision, so to speak. Mike, tell us, what was the design of the study and where did it take place? For sure. So this was uh, an investigator-initiated, randomized, open label, but the assessors were blinded, non-inferiority trial, and it was done across 33 sites in Europe. Okay, and who did they include in this study? Yeah, so this is a nice part. The inclusion and exclusion criteria are crisp, concise, and simple to remember. So you were included if you had an acute coronary syndrome, you had to have a positive troponin, and you had to have a successful PCI, and then a planned 12 months of treatment thereafter. And the only real exclusion criteria were patients over the age of 80, as well as those with a contraindication to the medications, or people who were on an oral anticoagulant. Great. Very fair, very broad inclusion. Um, what did they actually do as the intervention in this trial? For sure. So they had two arms. Their control arm received 12 months of Prasagril, full stop. And then in the step-down arm, if you will, they got Prasagril initially for a week, and then they got Plavix or Clopidogrel for a week. And once they were on Clopidogrel, they then tested their platelet function. And at that point in time, that group was either continued on clopidogrel or bumped back up to prasagril, all depending on the result of that platelet function test. So both groups actually had their platelet function test being performed, but only in the non-control group did that information actually then decide what treatment they were going to get thereafter. So a question that I wanted to ask you, 
Well, first, I think it's important that you explain to us and the listeners what platelet function testing is. And then, if possible, why the one week of clopidogrel to perform the platelet testing? Why not just keep everybody on prasugrel and then do their testing and step down accordingly? Yeah, good question. So this platelet function testing, or PFT for short, which I'm sure respirologists will hate, but uh, for PFT for short, this test needs to be performed not when you're on prasugrel. It needs to be performed when you're on clopidogrel. So that's why they kind of did that dance. They let everyone for the first week get the exact same drug, and then for the second week, they switched them to clopidogrel so that they could then perform the platelet function testing. And the platelet function testing essentially is giving the clinician information about how reactive are the patient's platelets. That sounds kind of like voodoo-ish, but essentially we know that patients who have high platelet reactivity, those individuals are associated with a much higher risk of recurrent ischemic events. So if you have a high platelet reactivity patient, you'll say, okay, I'm putting this person back on Prasugrel. Whereas if they don't have this sort of high platelet reactivity, you say, all right, I'm going to continue them on clopidogrel. Okay, well, that makes sense. And uh, learn something about platelet function testing and, uh, and the drugs you need to be on for it. So thanks for that. Uh, I do agree the respirologists probably cringe, but hey, what are you going to do? So Mike, tell us what was the primary outcome that they were measuring then after this intervention? Sure. So the primary endpoint was a very clinically relevant one. They defined it as net clinical benefit. So they were looking at outcomes including cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, or bleeding, and they had a grading system for this one year after randomization. And as mentioned, uh, this was a non-inferiority study. So this primary outcome of net clinical benefit, is that a composite of both the efficacy around cardiovascular death and MI stroke and bleeding as a sort of a counterbalancing measure? Exactly, yeah. And the system they used to assess bleeding was something I had uh, never heard before. And this system was, uh, where is it here? Like the bark system, um, maybe like the root beer from type zero being no bleeding, type five being like you died from bleeding. And they looked at type two bleeding, which is clinically overt, an obvious sign of hemorrhage, and it's actionable. That means they need to be hospitalized because of it. They need a specific test because of it. They need a treatment because of it. So not the, you know, a bit of a vague definition, but that's what they use to define bleeding. Okay. And what did they find ultimately then? For sure. So in terms of their findings and the patients who were included, so the patients who were included in this study, you know, the typical patient was a 60-year-old man and 80% of the patients were men on average BMI of 28. All the patients were Caucasian and the baseline risk of coronary disease, diabetes, etc., was approximately 15 to 20 percent, and the groups were well balanced after randomization. Sounds like a patient I recognize. What about the primary endpoint? How does that look? So the primary endpoint occurred in 7 percent of patients in the de-escalation therapy uh, arm and in 9 percent of patients in the control arm. So this met the non-inferiority margin, but it did not meet the superiority margin. So you could say that the de-escalation therapy was not inferior to control, and specifically, there was no increased risk of cardiovascular death or myocardial infarction or stroke in the de-escalation therapy. 
And the obvious important question is, what about bleeding? So there was a 20% reduction in bleeding in the de-escalation group, although not statistically significant, but I think that's clinically significant to me. So uh, those were kind of the key findings. And, you know, let's take a sip from the bark Kool-Aid. What about the bark bleeding sort of scores as a secondary outcome? Any, any interesting points there? Yeah, good question. Essentially, it was fairly well balanced between the two groups. As mentioned, a lower overall risk of bleeding in the de-escalation therapy. And then for the higher risk bleeding, sort of the type 3 and type 4, there were just too few events to really say anything with a lot of confidence. So I think I'll leave it at that for the higher risk bleeding. Fair enough. So just I just want to help make sure I have it straight in my mind. So your primary endpoint is a composite of both efficacy outcomes and reduction of thrombotic events or death, etc., balanced by bleeding. And we see that there's a 7% versus 9% rate of those counterbalancing outcomes in the primary endpoint. But even if you broke those apart into cardiovascular death or stroke or MI, we still don't see any risk on that arm of the net clinical benefit uh, balance. Yeah, and as well, I kind of think of this composite as all of this composite included bad stuff. The bad stuff might have been a heart attack. The bad stuff might have been cardiovascular death. The bad stuff might have been bleeding. So it was any of those four things. And you could argue, well, are all of those really on par? Are all of those of the same importance to my patients? Which is certainly a a good question. But whether you looked at it in terms of the composite or if you looked at it in terms of just the CV death, MI stroke, there was no uh, increased risk in the de-escalation group. Fair enough. So, Mike, anything else interesting that you wanted to point out that caught your eye in this study? Uh, yeah, a couple things. Um, these were pre-planned, but, you know, obviously not the primary endpoint here. But there was a very clear larger treatment benefit for the de-escalation patients if those patients had a STEMI, which I found really interesting. So it seemed like there was a bigger effect size for the sicker patients even for de-escalation. So I found that quite interesting, but it's sort of, I guess, hypothesis generating. And then it seemed as though younger patients benefited more from de-escalation. And by younger, I mean, you know, less than 70. But that makes sense because we know that these newer agents definitely cause a higher risk of bleeding in older patients. So yeah, those are two interesting points for me. Okay. So what about limitations? Anything that you thought was a real drawback or weakness overall in this study? I mean, the fact that it wasn't a blinded study, so the outcomes were blinded, but the patients weren't, it's always a concern. However, I kind of get it because they had to do that dance about a week of for prazogrel and then a week for clopidogrel, so I get that. The obvious question is, how much does this testing cost and how precise is this testing? You know, I was talking to some colleagues you know, south of the border and sort of ask them, how often are you guys ordering this test? And do you have, do you even have the test? Because I've never, I've never seen this test before. So everyone kind of gave the response of, you know, now and again, but not something I do commonly, probably because there wasn't good evidence for it beforehand. So that's a big question. And then a couple other limitations, like pragmatically, it's hard enough for me to, you know, try to convince my patients to take their medications at baseline. And now I got to tell a patient, you're actually going to take one drug just for a week. And then I want you to stop it. I'm going to switch to something else for a week. Then we're going to do a blood test. And then I may or may not switch you back to the other one. That's confusing 
for me as a doctor, let alone um, for the patients. I think that's going to be one of those, can you write that down for me, doctor, uh, situations, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Twice. Um, so Mike, summarize it for us. What do you want our listeners to take away from the tropical ACS trial? Yeah. So I think the take-home point is that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach with these antiplatelet agents and I think this gives some really strong evidence to support this. Currently, clinically, at least where I work, I don't have the option to order a blood test and determine, hmm, what agent should my patient be on? But I think it's interesting to know that we have a large randomized trial that's telling us, you know, there's information out there, albeit laboratory information, that could really be guiding our therapy and we talk a lot about personalized medicine. Uh, I've seen very little evidence of it in practice, but this seems like maybe, maybe here might be uh, a possibility for uh, personalized medicine, but time will tell. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, thanks, Mike, for that. That was a very interesting study. I think it's important that we brought that to the table. And who knows what platelet functioning testing holds in store for the future of our patients who have uh, acute coronary syndrome and PCI. Well, let's move on to a similar vein, but slightly different question, uh, the study that I chose for this week. This is called the Redual PCI, clever name. And really, it is a trial that gets back to the argument around triple therapy. So those who have atrial fibrillation and undergo percutaneous coronary intervention. First author was Christopher Cannon. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2017. Nice. It's like the rival journal to the Lancet. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we can decide which one was a higher impact study. So what was the bottom line for this one? Well, Mike, this was a multi-center randomized trial. It included over about 2,700 patients who had atrial fibrillation and underwent PCI. And ultimately what it found uh, was that the risk of bleeding was between you know, 7 and 11% lower among those who received dual therapy with dabigatran and clopidogrel or ticagrelor than among those who received triple therapy, which in this case was with warfarin, clopidogrel or ticagrelor, and aspirin. And ultimately it also showed that dual therapy was non-inferior to triple therapy with respect to the risk of thromboembolic events. That's, I mean, that's impressive. This is like uh, impressive stuff you picked here, Karen. Well, I, uh, you know, it's, it's easy when, when these studies are published, they are right at the top of the, the pile and it's pretty obvious that they need to be covered on the rounds table. So we're bringing it to you live. That makes sense to me. So yeah, um, so why did you choose this um, agent? I mean, and by agent, I mean trial. Yeah, it, trial. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about a lot of different agents and trials and it all gets mixed into the wash. So, you know, this is a debate that has continued and continues to evolve, the debate around triple therapy and what you should do in patients who have atrial, concomitant atrial fibrillation and an indication for PCI. There's been two prior trials. We, in fact, covered the Pioneer trial last year on the rounds table. There's also the WOEST trial that have looked at varying combinations of agents and for varying durations in the triple therapy debate. But ultimately, we don't really have a clear answer, and no trial to date actually, including the redual ACS, evaluates thromboembolic events as its primary outcome. But the bleeding risk is not insignificant, and this is what these trials have evaluated as their primary outcome. So, for example, if you're on triple therapy compared to warfarin therapy alone, you have a four times higher risk of major bleeding. 
and you have a risk of intracranial hemorrhage that is twice as high as the risk with dual antiplatelet therapy. So what the redual uh, trial adds to the literature is that it adds one of the new direct oral anticoagulants in addition to antiplatelet agents as a comparison to triple therapy with warfarin uh, for a longer time period than the prior two. Nice. I, I like that. Like, this is extremely relevant because, I mean, I know personally I have no freaking clue triple therapy, dual therapy, how long, what should I be doing? So, um, yeah, so how did they answer this question? So what they did was, you know, Boeinger thankfully or generously put up the funds to sponsor this trial. And they're the manufacturer of the Bigatran. Out of the goodness of their heart. Out of the goodness of their heart, you know? <laughs> um, but they, they funded a multi-center open-label randomized trial that was blinded adjudication uh, to the outcomes. And this was conducted between 2014 and 2016 at, get this Mike, 414 sites in 41 countries around the world. Okay, so who was actually included in this uh, study? Yeah, so uh, not quite as simple as your tropical ACS, but I still think a fairly straightforward. Um, the things that I'll point out from an inclusion standpoint, adults with non-valvular atrial fibrillation who underwent PCI with either a bare metal stent or a drug-eluting stent, although ultimately most patients ended up actually getting a drug-eluting stent, and that had to be done within five days. Now, the indication could be for stable coronary disease or an acute coronary syndrome. They excluded people who had artificial valves, obviously, and with severe chronic kidney disease and a creatinine clearance of less than 30, um, that obviously precludes you from getting most of the direct oral anticoagulants in this day and age. Cool. Yeah, that all seems to make sense for me. So yeah, what were the uh, what were the actual interventions in the groups? Yeah, so there's actually three arms to this trial. So after the patient undergoes PCI in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio, they get randomized to dual therapy with low-dose dabigatran. That's 110 milligrams twice a day. And they either get standard-dose clopidogrel or ticagrelor. Second group was dual therapy with 150 milligrams. That's full-dose dabigatran plus either clopidogrel or ticraglor, and both of those groups get the antiplatelets for 12 months. And then the triple therapy group is actually with warfarin, with your usual INR target between two and three. Then they get aspirin at less than 100 milligrams a day, so in Canada and the US that'd be a baby aspirin, and either clopidogrel or ticraglor for 12 months. Now the aspirin in the triple therapy arm was discontinued after one month if you got a bare metal stent or three months if you got a drug-eluting stent. Okay, that sounds reasonable. So uh, what was the primary outcome for this study? Um, so the primary outcome they looked at was the first major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding event. And those are defined by the International Society of Thrombosis. So it's a fairly standard bleeding outcome definition. Yeah, and that's like, that's the one I'm more used to rather than this, you know, bark Barks root beer Bark. um, <laughs> uh, one. So that, that, that one's more familiar. Sorry, you're, so you're saying about the outcomes. Yeah, so the secondary outcome was a composite efficacy endpoint of thromboembolic events. So that's, you know, your myocardial infarction, your stroke, or your systemic embolism. Um, they also looked at death or unplanned revascularization, whether that was either PCI or you actually underwent coronary artery bypass grafting. Okay. So what did the patients look like uh, in this study and what were the primary findings? Right. So you had just over 2,200 patients enrolled. Your mean CHADS VASC score, so you know this is an American-based trial, so to speak, where the headquarters are, so they use the CHADS VASC, that was 3.8. You know, that's your intermediate 
risk individual. Chad's VASC, of course, goes up to a score of nine. The mean duration of treatment with anticoagulants in the trial was 12.3 months, and the mean duration of follow-up was 14 months, so they followed just for about a year. And uh, in the triple therapy group, where they're getting warfarin, they're, they're spending about 64% of their time in the therapeutic INR range, which is what we see typically in most studies that look at uh, warfarin time in therapeutic range. Okay, cool. And then the primary outcome? Yeah, so the incidence of first major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding event was seen within the first month. You, really, you start to see a separation of the graphs almost immediately. And what you saw was about 15% rate of that outcome in the 110 milligram dual therapy group, about a 27% rate in the triple therapy group. So comparing those two groups, you had a hazard ratio of 0.52 which was significant both for non-inferiority and for superiority. Um, and then the rate of that primary outcome was 20% in the 150 milligram dual therapy group uh, as compared to the corresponding uh, triple therapy group, which was about 27%, as I said. That was a hazard ratio of 0.72. That was significant for non-inferiority, but not for superiority. Cool. Any other interesting points you want to discuss? Yeah, you know, one interesting thing came up. In the initial protocol, they'd planned to have just about 8,500 patients. And they, what they designed their trial was to be a co-primary endpoint of thromboembolic events and bleeding. But ultimately, they were having a difficult time with enrollment um, in a timely fashion. And, you know, you have to make practical decisions in a, in a very complicated and large trial. And they was deemed to be infeasible, so they ended up sort of changing their primary endpoint to just the bleeding outcome. And, you know, that's always just an interesting thing that happens and makes you sort of pause and think about the validity of the trial overall. I, I still think that what we see is valid, um, but nevertheless. Yeah, I feel like you and I should do a study of looking the frequency of when the primary endpoint changes and the likelihood of a positive finding as opposed to studies that don't change your primary outcome and how often those have, have a positive finding. I think that would be... A yeah, that would be interesting. That'd be, that'd be cool to do. Um, anyway, okay, I'm staying focused though. Are they, okay, any, any big limitations to discuss for this one? No, I, I didn't really see any major, major points of concern. I thought it was a really well-conducted trial. The, the other thing I wanted just to, to bring the listeners' attention to actually was um, if you read the accompanying editorial that uh, goes along with this in the New England, they performed actually a nice sort of little meta-analysis of the three trials to date that have looked at triple therapy. So that WOEST trial, the Pioneer trial, and this redual. And it actually, overall, it shows kind of consistency that the odds of major and minor bleeding with dual therapy are half the odds with triple therapy. And there doesn't really appear to be any signal of increased risk of thromboembolic events. So um, you're starting to already even see a bit of collection of literature that's consistent with each other. And these findings seem to be reproducible which gives me much more reassurance and confidence in the in the findings themselves. Yeah, for sure. So do you want to talk about limitations or is boring Earl Ingelheim paying you off so that you don't discuss limitations? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Mike, what did you think? Did you have any, any thoughts about any major limitations, any things that concerned you? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was concerned about was the dropout rate. Why the heck was the dropout rate so much higher in the Warfarin group than it was in either of the two Dabigatran groups? I mean, it's hard to speculate what impact that would have had. 
um, because we just don't know what happened to those individuals. Um, but when you have that sort of differential dropout and then you don't have outcomes for that people, for those people, um, I mean, that can swing your, your hazard ratio. So uh, that's, that's one of my concerns for sure. But yeah, w- w- what do you think? Is this going to change how you're practicing these days? I mean, I, I think so. Uh, you know, your, your point is well taken about the, the dropout rate. But, you know, in the context of two prior trials and, and things seem to be lining up in the same efficacy, regardless of the point estimate or sort of the size of that effect, I think that I'm generally impressed with the safety of dual therapy, both from a bleeding standpoint and uh, reassured that no major increased risk of thromboembolic events exist. So if I, you know, I think if I'm faced with the decision about whether I am going to use triple or double therapy, I, I, I think I might lean more heavily towards uh, double therapy these days. I'm not sure what you think, Mike. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm on the same page. And I bet this is a class effect. I'm sure it isn't just specific to dabigatran. Um, but, you know, I think we'll need another study or two to answer that one. But I agree with you. The risks of triple therapy are not inconsequential. They're very real. I think we have a lot more support that uh, dual therapy and one of them being a DOAC seems to be a very reasonable and probably safer approach. Well, Mike, great show as always. Uh, Let's move on to my favorite segment of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Mike, what is catching your eye this week? Oh, cool. So it was uh, something that the the CNN uh, just broke this story. So um, a good old drug manufacturing company in the U.S. decided that they were going to create a new medication so they took dextromethorphan, which is the active ingredient in cough syrup, and quinidine, which is an antiarrhythmic. It turns out that quinidine has some fancy CYP450 inhibitory effects, and that results in supra-therapeutic levels of this cough syrup, essentially. Okay, So they take these two individual components, both of them probably cost pennies. They now sell it for hundreds of dollars. They get it approved through the orphan drug pathway to treat a subset of people with ALS or MS. However, the drug companies are using this en masse for patients in nursing homes, patients with dementia, essentially as a mild sedative. And CNN was able to show that a small group of physicians account for the vast majority of the prescribing, and they were paid thousands and thousands of dollars by the drug maker. So, whoopsie. Whoopsie, conflict of interest. That's too bad. Well, that's definitely interesting. It just shows you that it still exists in our modern age, despite all the safeguards we've tried to build in. But whoops, that's all I got to say about that. Well, I, I uh, maybe a slightly similar vein to your good stuff uh, this week, Mike. I read a fascinating article in CMAG this past couple of weeks that talks about predatory journals. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, until I had published a paper only a couple of years ago, I didn't really know what a predatory journal was. But let me ask you, Mike, do you get a bunch of emails now in your inbox you know, from journals you'd never heard of, but maybe sound similar to major journals, inviting you to be an editor or to inviting you for a review or to publish your work here or there. You get anything like that? Yeah, like almost every day. And one of the, one of the times I almost fell for it, I came very close and I gave a medical student, hey, this would be a nice article for you to write up. And then a week, a week later, we realized this was, uh, you know, total garbage. So yeah, I've been, uh, been duped at least once. So these journals are often dismissed as the research equivalent of 
what the article calls stereotypical Nigerian scammers. They're products of poverty, opportunism, and lax oversight in other countries. And as you've seen in your inbox and I see in mine, the number of predatory journals and articles has actually exploded over the last several years with the rise of online open access publishing. And why are they called predatory? Well, these journals basically exist to collect fees from authors and they don't really have much concern for the ethics, quality, or dissemination of the research they publish. So you would think, okay, that makes sense, but are we complicit in the world in which they operate? And the survey and what this article talks about is that we absolutely are in a kind of a disturbing way. So they took a survey of nearly 2,000 biomedical articles from more than 200 suspected predatory journals and they found an astounding 57% of the corresponding authors came from upper middle income or high income countries. The US ranked second only to India for overall number of articles. Canada ranked 12th, but was the third most common location of, this, of the, the suspicious journals themselves after India and the US. These predatory journals are never indexed. They allow, amount to little more than resume padding for the authors, and yet, all of the major funders of research in these, in, you know, in U.S. and Canada and developed countries were sourced as the funders for many of the studies in these predatory journals. And major institutions, uh, research institutions across the, the continent were also publishing in these predatory journals. So I, uh, I thought it was both interesting from the thought about what predatory journals are, but maybe more importantly, how we as researchers and the pressures that we have to publish are complicit in, uh, in helping to buoy these predatory journals uh, into their existence. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is sometimes you don't know, and sometimes these journals might actually, I remember submitting to one that had, was on PubMed for a couple of years, and then I noticed, like, they just stopped publishing on PubMed from 2015 onwards. So then I emailed the editor, and then they just never got back to me. And then it became clear thereafter, wait a sec, this is a predatory journal, but they made themselves look very legit for three years. They were on PubMed, um, they could be, you could be cited, but then, uh, you know, I guess the wheels fell off after that. You're never safe. Even in the stacks of research journal articles, there's still the predators out there. Look sharp, stay sharp, as my gym teacher used to say. Thank you for another great week on the show, Mike. It's always a pleasure having you here. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. For sure. Thanks for having me, Karen. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, Audio Editor Emilio Garcias Flores, Communications Director Anthony Maher, Segment Developer Shaliza Halani, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. 